is the policy of of genocide a a a, a new policy? Do we do we find gen, genocide? I assume was coined after World War II in, mm. in the history of empire building. Do we do we find this idea of eliminating a people or a race, or it's simply controlling, conquering, and then controlling a people and or race? Well, I mean, most historians are recognized that, you know, genocide was practiced in the whole process of empire building in the 18th and 19th century and so on. Uh, whether it's, you know, Native Americans or whether it's, um, the, you know, inhabitants of German Southwest Africa. Uh, you know, there are plenty of places people look, or, or the, the, um, uh, reduction of the population, Aboriginal population of Australia, for example. Um, and these are actually examples that, that Hitler often quoted to justify the ethnic cleansing of his empire. You know, it had already, always happened. Empires did this. And it's true, empires did do that. But, uh, I mean, the difference in the sense of the Jewish genocide of course, is that it, it fitted into a rather different framework, too. Not only was it necessary to eliminate the Jews, because this was a Germanic empire, he didn't want it full of Jews, um, but Hitler thought the Jews had been responsible for stifling German efforts to build an empire, first in the First World War, and then through declaring war in 1939, driving Roosevelt to war as he saw it and so on, that there was a malign global conspiracy of the Jews, um, to undermine Germany's claim to be an imperial power, its right to be an imperial power. And that's why the genocide of the Jews became so thorough and widespread, of course. It wasn't just cleansing the empire. It was also a question of eliminating the enemy of German imperialism. So so the calculation that um, the Holocaust, the genocide, was taking away military resources and uh, that could have been used to build an empire. It was part of what Hitler considered his empire building, so it was not mutually exclusive. No, they were not mutually exclusive at all. I and mean, the interesting thing is that the Germans tried to tried to build their empire um, at the same time as trying to win the war, and it was extremely difficult, of course, to do both things. But, but yes, I mean, you're destroying the Jews which were now seen also as a, as a threat to the German army as it expanded. They were saboteurs and partisans, etc. Um, but eliminating the Jews was something you found that Hitler felt you had to do at the same time as, as winning the war. Uh, two wars in one, in other words, uh, fought together. Uh, the war against the Jews, of course, a war that Hitler hoped that he could win, um, uh, uh, even while the war was going on. You know, it was a turning point in 1942-43, I suppose, where it becomes clear that, that you know, that Germany is not going to win the war. But Hitler has no doubt that destroying the Jews still remains uh, a major objective of his war-making and imperialism. Post-World War II, um, when you look at tribu- tribunals, um, international courts, um, are those justified and or necessary um, after such a such a war. Well, that's a difficult question to answer because everybody sees it as allied justice. Uh, but it was very important because until that point, the end of the Second World War, 
Uh, international law had been silent about a lot of the violations that went on during the Second World War. Even war itself was not actually contrary to international law, strange though that may seem. Um, but at Nuremberg, you know, a set of principles was established. First of all, of course, that war, aggressive war, is contrary to international law. Um, and then there were crimes against humanity, which were conducted in the course of the war, uh, which again was a novelty. You know, but you needed some way of, 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 of defining in international law uh, that uh, genocide and the abuse of civilians was contrary to the spirit of international law. And then, of course, war crimes as such perpetrated by, um, well, actually perpetrated by armed forces everywhere, but perpetrated excessively by the German and the Japanese armed forces. Also, these had to be defined more closely than they had ever been defined before. So I think, yes, the tribunals, for all their drawbacks, uh, for all, you know, the, the legal arguments, you know, this was a founding moment for modern international law. And ever since then, we live with a body of international law, which you know, defines things like uh, aggression, defines things like genocide, defines things like crimes against humanity. As we can see with the war between Russia and Ukraine, you know, having international law doesn't necessarily make a difference, but at least it's there. So we now live in a post-empire global structure, we have a lot of countries. Right? I think the UN, how many countries now in the UN? Almost 200. Well, it fluctuates, 196. Then. 196. Um, is, is today's world order a safer world to live in, more than an empire-dominated global structure? Well, I would say it was a different world. It's not necessarily safer. Uh, in some respects, of course, it has been safer. Uh, apart from the war that's currently being waged in Ukraine, Europe has you know, managed to keep at peace, but it was the most bellicose part of the world for hundreds of years. Um, but nation states elsewhere, yes, they've, you know, they've, they've guarded their interests, they've fought each other and so on. It's not necessarily a safer place, but it's a different place. It's a place of nation states which have to make up their own destiny. Uh, you know, in the age of empire, you know, subject peoples had no say in their own destiny. That destiny was in the hands of the elites that dominated empire in the European capitals. Do, do you see a potential for empire building on the part of certain world powers? Is that is that a possibility today, or are we totally post that and we have new international? Um, laws that are that are dominating the you know how the game is played today which is impossible to go back to that i don't think you'll go backwards uh as an historian i'm conscious that it's impossible to predict the future even the very near future and putin certainly looks like an imperialist uh you know has ambitions to you know reconstitute russia and make a you know a, a greater power again um whether that actually amounts to Russian imperialism, again, I think is a, you know, is a difficult issue. The other country people look at, of course, is, is China, People's Republic of China. Might China become an imperialist state? I think it's highly unlikely. I think that empire in the sense in which we understood it in the late 19th and the first half of the 20th century is, is past. Um, and whatever happens in the 21st century, it'll be different. So how would you define the global order today? 
I know it's nation state, but if you look at the, the balance of power, how would you define it today? Well, the global order today is an order of the nation states, but clearly some matter a great deal more than others. You know, we are, we are faced with a multipolar system. Uh, you have China as, a, as a, a major player. You have the United States as the major military power in the world. Well, you have Russia, of course, with its ambitions to stand up and say, hey, look, you know, we're a great power again. You have the European Union, which is, uh, you know, if you think historically, you know, a unique moment in Europe's history, actually coming coming together. Um, and you have flashpoints around the world, different flashpoints in different places. Uh, it's a it's a it's a rather mobile, it's a rather unstable global order, uh, and it's held together. It's held together at all by the desire of most states, and that includes China too, to sustain the global trading economy because that's what's given us our current wealth. Um, and you know, disruptions to the trading economy, whether it's you know the economic crisis of 10 years ago, whether it's, you know, the Russia-Ukrainian war is a thing that worries a great many people. Whether that actually opens the way to more conflict, you know, it's difficult to say, resource wars of one kind or another. But we do live in a, in a paradoxically, in a, in a stable world, but at the same time, a world with potential instabilities. And, and what do you see as the, the major flashpoints in the world today? Beyond, let's say, Russia and Ukraine, and, and or including that, what what are the major flashpoints today? Well, I think the major flashpoints will will involve resource competition because resources are finite and they're running out. Um, it will uh, be affected by climatic change because there are you know there are large parts of the world uh, which are already damaged by climatic change and be more damaged in the near future. Uh, now, whether that involves you know high levels of conflict or local conflict uh, is difficult to predict. But but you know, the problem of resources has been a, a you know, basic problem going back through history, uh, and it's difficult to imagine that this can be always resolved um, peacefully. I mean, I hope the 21st century is not a century of war like the 20th century. Um, but as an historian, when you look back, it's very difficult to conclude that, you know, that, that war is obsolete or it's still one of those tools that countries reach for, you know, when it's necessary. Uh, I know we can go on and on. Was there anything else that perhaps, I, I, you know, only touched on very little bit of, of your theory? Anything that was any part of the theory that, you wanted to just go over and just hammer home for the... Uh, well, one of the things I'd, I'd like to talk about a bit, which yes. is a, a chapter in the book, it's called The Emotional Geography of War. Um, and it, it's something I wanted to put in in the discussion of the Second World War. And it really is about, uh, well, it's about the degree of trauma, emotional trauma and so on, that, that civilians and um, military alike go through as a result of war and how they cope with that. Because one of the big questions about the Second World War is that these are mainly civilian armies. They're mobilized civilians, millions, tens of millions of them. Most of them never thought they'd be fighting a world war. Uh, they have very mixed uh, capabilities. How do you get them to fight? How do you get them organized, put weapons in their hand, tell, each, tell them to kill each other? Uh, and what's the consequence? And that chapter is really about explaining, you know, how you you know how you overcome the emotional crisis that many people go through when they are confronted with this thing kill or be killed 
what coping mechanisms do they find? How do civilians cope on the bombardment? And that's an, a, an aspect of the war. And it's a, it's a horrible aspect of the war because you know, a very, very high proportion of those in uniform did become psychiatric casualties. Um, it's an aspect of the war that tends to be glossed over, particularly in Western accounts where it's the good war, the heroic war and so on. Um, but it's, you know, for the people involved, it's a, a messy war. It's a traumatic experience. You know, it's an emotional roller coaster. And I think that reading that should remind um, you know, the modern generation that, you know, that war is a terrible thing and it does terrible things to the people that actually wage it, as we can see on our screens in the war between Ukraine and Russia. And, and so how, how did the various, how, how did the United States mobilize its people versus the way perhaps a Britain or France or the Japanese? Um, mm. What were the differences and nuances between those, those countries? Well, it was difficult in the United States because they rejected almost two million recruits at the recruiting stations for uh, potentials you know, because they were potentially psychologically unsuitable. Um, and you did that with a quick 15 minute interview asking some rather uh, strange questions. Um, but, you know, two million were already rejected. So the assumption was that those who were accepted would probably be you know, psychologically more capable but you know great effort was made to persuade them that you know they would all feel fear but don't, don't worry you can overcome it um the majority of people in the american army didn't fight of course you know, there was a huge managerial logistic tail to the uh, american army those who did fight well in north africa there were 25 percent psychiatric casualties uh, so you know people didn't adapt a very high proportion of people didn't adapt uh, in the battles in Normandy in all three armies British, Canadian, American very high level of psychiatric casualty you had to keep feeding men in and um, you know they in turn became other medical or psychiatric casualties um, you know for a, a civilian army um, you know it was a difficult transition um, uh, and in most cases, people found ways of coping. The small unit commitment to their mates. Uh, in fact, that's what most most uh, American soldiers, when interviewed, uh, talked about. You know, that, that even you know they were fearful, they didn't want to fight, but they didn't want to let their mates down. Uh, and and that was one of the things that drove them on. As it drove on soldiers in all armies, you know, your local group, your mates, you know, your local officer, perhaps, those are the people you're fighting for, because you don't see the wider war. And, and Japanese, was Japanese culture different, or the same kind of phenomena that was studied um, post the war on mm. soldiers and civilians? Well, the Japanese assumed that the, 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 there were no psychiatric casualties. Um, and the, they, they did have a handful of psychologists attached to the army, but they, the, their purpose was to try and find out why some Japanese soldiers tried to kill their officers. Um, they were not interested in the Japanese as psychiatric casualties. They got no treatment. Uh, a few who were regarded as completely psychotic were sent back to punishment um, units back in mainland Japan. Uh, but they kept uh, their soldiers fighting by, you know, ferocious discipline, ferocious level of discipline. And all the Japanese, of course, coped, I mean, as other armies did, of course, by, again, by, by trying to create small solidarities with, you know, with their mates. 
um, uh, and hoping that they would somehow or other survive. But the ethos for the Japanese military is, is very different. You know, there's no conscientious objection, there are no psychiatric casualties, and you fight to the death. Fascinating, fascinating subject. Yeah, we urge all our viewers and listeners to um, go on to Amazon, as I did, Blood and Ruins, The Last Imperial War, 1931 to 1945. Uh, Professor uh, Richard Overy, again, thank you very, very much for your time. We appreciate it very much. Thank you very much.